All right. Um, <clears throat> turn with me, please, to Ephesians chapter 5. I believe that's where we are right now. Ephesians chapter 5. And we will be considering verses 1 to 21. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1 up to verse 21. A few weeks ago, my... Oh, he's gone now. Good. Our youngest asked me to watch Black Panther with him. And we enjoyed it. And it ended with... King T'Challa and the kingdom of Wakanda giving up their self-imposed isolation. If you didn't watch the end credit scene, you wouldn't know about this, but at, was it the first or second end credit? The first one. Thank you, sir. <laughs> the first end credit scene. They were giving up their self-imposed isolation to bless the outside world with their technological prowess. And I say that because the church has a similar task. And no, we do not have vibranium. Neither do we have advanced technology. We have something better. We have the life-giving gospel of Jesus Christ. As Ephesians 3 would say, we are the showcase of God's multicolored wisdom. And so the question for us today is, how do we engage? We sang, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. But how does that work out in daily life, in daily practice? Paul, in chapter 5, gives us three admonitions that help us understand how we shall engage. He tells us to walk in love to walk as children of light, and to walk wisely. So let's read chapter 5, verse 1 to 21, and I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. 
Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So how do we engage? Well, essentially, we engage the world around us by faithfully living out the life of the new creation as God's beloved children rescued by Christ's redemptive self-giving. That's in chapter 5 and verse 2. We walk in love as beloved children. And this life of self-giving love, imitating our Lord Jesus Christ, is a life that is learned in community. You have to, you cannot disconnect chapter 5, verse 1 and 2 from what has gone on all the way from chapter 1. And more specifically, the focus on verse, chapter 4, verse 17 to verse 32. It is learned in community. And Paul has given us an image of communal transformation in 17 to 32 of how we live out the new life as a community. That is the foundation of our engagement. The church, our gathered worship and our communion together is our training ground. This is where we develop the habits and desires that glorify God. Or if you want to put it another way, the church is the community where we socialize one another into the values of the kingdom so that we could reflect the character of Christ as we live in society. That is part of the reason why the elders are currently working on um, a Christian lifestyle statement. It is not intended to be a moralistic whip for, for us to keep all of us in line. We think of it as a way of expressing in concrete terms how we will live together as a distinctive people called by Christ to holiness, reflecting his character. It is not exhaustive, but it is a way for us to challenge one another to grow in grace, to hold one another accountable, to live for the purposes of Christ, to reflect the character of Jesus. They will function, the Christian lifestyle statement, will function the way scales function for a piano student or a violin student. They, they train your fingers to perform. And these lifestyle, this lifestyle statement is a way of training our dispositions and habits to act rightly so that we can engage people with the character of Jesus. And Paul then goes on in chapter three, in chapter 5, verse 3, to give us a command. What does it mean to walk in love? We tend to have an airy-fairy notion of love. 
but we understand that love means seeking the greatest good of the other. And so Paul now gives concrete expression to what it means to walk in love. Verse 3, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Some of us might be tempted to think, man, Paul, that repressed prude, at it again. But really, the Apostle Paul, in warning us against these sinful attitudes and actions, is warning against destructive expressions of distorted loves. They are the opposite, if you will, of walking in love. It's not just sex. Paul Tripp observes, sex is deeply spiritual. Your relationship to your own sexuality and the sexuality of others will always reveal your heart. Your sexual life will always be an expression of what you truly worship. Stop and think about that. Your sexual life will always be an expression of what you truly worship. Sex is deeply religious. In sex, either you are self-consciously submitting to God or you are setting yourself up as God. By the same token, Paul warns against covetousness, which is equivalent to idolatry. That's another expression of our distorted loves. And again, Paul Tripp has been very helpful. Money is not a secular thing. It is much more than how much currency you have in your wallet and in your bank account. It is much, much more than hitting the buy button on your iPhone. Your thoughts about money and your use of money always are an expression of the deepest treasures of your heart. Money will expose what you really value and what you truly serve. And so when Paul says, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints, Paul is actually telling us to repent of our underlying self-centeredness and refusal to submit to God. He is deliberately contrasting living to gratify your selfish desires with the sacrificial self-giving of our Lord Jesus Christ in verse 2. That's the standard. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Self-giving to seek the welfare of others. And as it is a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God, it is about the pleasure of God, not my pleasure. And here's the great thing. You and I are beneficiaries, recipients of Christ's self-giving love. And it is that love that reorders and reorients our disordered loves. We don't change on our own. It is the transforming love of Christ that reorders our disordered desires. And that reordering of our desires is manifested in the way we speak. Because 
as Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So Paul says, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. We don't engage in coarse jokes. It's not that we don't make jokes. I would die if I couldn't joke. Like that was one of the things that attracted me to Crestwick. The search committee was making jokes. And they laughed at my jokes. Man. But there's a kind of joking that objectifies others, isn't there? And that's what we're talking about. And there's a kind of joking that demeans human sexuality. So we don't engage in that. We don't objectify others and we don't put people down. We can joke about one another in a healthy, constructive way. And that's captured in the language of instead, let there be giving of thanks. And again, it's a big picture down under in the depths of your heart approach that Paul is talking about. Because gratitude for God's redemptive grace should and must shape our motives and outlook. If we are grateful to God for His redemption, then we will, according to chapter 4 and verse um, 30 to 32, or 29 to 32, we will speak to build people up and bless them. Because we want to treat people the way God treats us. And that extends, to how, that extends to how we speak to them. Our God has made us heirs of the kingdom. And so we speak to build people up. But also, according to verse 6 and verse 7, because we are heirs of the kingdom, we cannot live as if we are children of wrath. And Paul, in verse 6, uh, verse 5, is, making a, a, is giving us a... a a serious warning. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually impure, is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. He's not saying that you could lose your salvation or that you would lose your reward. What he's saying is this. If you profess to belong to Jesus and yet are determined to live a sexually immoral, impure, or covetous life, then you better get a reality check because your profession is maybe false because that is very much inconsistent with the life of the new creation. But Paul is also aware that it is very easy to be influenced by the world around us. So he says in verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words. And frankly, I am amazed. Paul is writing in the first century about empty words. And I think of the number of words we face today on radio, on TV, on social media. There are so many empty words that regularly bombard us with messages telling us to gratify our desires because YOLO. For those of you who don't know what YOLO means, you only live once. So you got to live it up. 
And these messages have a way of creating discontent that chip away at our resolve to follow Christ, don't they? I just got an invitation to, uh, to, uh, to, to view the Apple event on sometime in March. And I know that's going to create a craving for that new whatever it is. <laughs> I'm not the only one, right? <laughs> but this is why Paul tells us to speak with thanksgiving. Because thanksgiving helps us to see through the lies that tempt us. D.A. Carson, in his book, The God Who Is There, tells us to imagine how different things might have been if instead of looking at the fruit and seeing that it was good for food and pleasant to the eye, that Eve had responded this way. Alternate reality. What if Eve had said this to Satan? Are you out of your skull? Look around. This is Eden. This is paradise. God knows exactly what he's doing. He made everything. He even made me. My husband loves me, and I love him. And we are both intoxicated with the joy and holiness of our beloved maker. My very being resonates with the desire to reflect something of his spectacular glory back to him. How could I possibly question his wisdom and love? He knows in a way I never can exactly what is best. And I trust him absolutely. And you want me to doubt him or question the purity of his motives and character? How idiotic is that? Besides, what possible good can come of a creature defying his creator and sovereign? Are you out of your skull? I mean, imagine if that were the way Eve had responded. We wouldn't be in this mess. See, the point D.A. Carson is making is that we resist temptation by remembering the incomparable goodness of God and the superior beauty of His plans for us. And to that end, Paul then reminds us of our unsavory past. Verse 8, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. You notice his description of us? We were not just in darkness, we were darkness. Satan had us so bamboozled, we preferred to live in rebellion. And when we were frustrated and in pain and agony because of our foolish decisions, we blamed God. But here's the grace of God. This same God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. That's what God did, isn't it? His Spirit brought us to life, turned on the light bulb. In fact, maybe installed the light bulb in our broken hearts, plugged us into the power source, and light 
flooded into our hearts when God made us new. He rescued us from the kingdom of darkness. And now we are light in the Lord. Now, we understand we are not light on our own. We may be candles, but the candle has no wick. (laughs) But through faith, we are united with Christ, who is the light of the world. And so we can sing, I am going to let it shine, because we are in Christ, who is the light of the world. And out of that understanding of his redemptive grace, our desires are transformed from pleasing ourselves to verse 10 and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. See, that's the transformation that God brings about. We are so gripped by his unconditional love that has rescued us from our guilt and condemnation that we now find pleasure in what delights him. That's why we cannot continue in immorality and covetousness. We have been given changed hearts, able to respond to the beauty of Jesus. See, back when I was working in sales, I used to think that I had to suppress my desires so that God would not be angry with me. That's how I grew up in church. Don't do this. And so I maintained my testimony among my coworkers and my friends. But I maintained that testimony with a sigh. I was like, oh man, gotta do this. And I wasn't very joyful because I felt that I was missing out in life. I was going through serious FOMO, fear of missing out. Now here's the great thing about what Paul is talking about here. See, seeking to please God out of gratitude for His grace is not about suppressing our desires. It is about having better, greater desires. This is really what Paul is all about. It is the renewing of our minds to desire what God desires, to desire what pleases God, and frankly, to desire what God knows is best for you and me. And so, we don't engage in sexual activity outside marriage because we want to express the gift of sexuality that God has given us in a way that glorifies Him, in a way that is consistent with the way He has made us. And we do not give ourselves to accumulating stuff. Not just because we're afraid to go into debt or because we know that that's going to end up being given away anyway. There's something deeper. We don't accumulate stuff because we find our satisfaction in Jesus. And we're not earning His approval. We want to please Him because He is our audience of one who delights in us so much already that He has given Himself for us. He has secured for us an eternal inheritance far better than anything that this world can offer. 
So it comes down to this. God's grace is so delightful. Why will I not live for Him? See, that's the vision of life that Paul is bringing before us. And as we live together in self-giving love, motivated by delight in God, then together we embody a distinctive life of human flourishing that exposes the darkness. That is what Paul is talking about in verse 11 to 14. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Paul is citing um, an, old, um, a new um, an early hymn of the Christian church, very likely. But he's telling us that as we live this life devoted to the pleasure of God, we inevitably bump up against the darkness and we expose that darkness. And here's what a church near Kiev has been doing in order to shine the light of Christ in Ukraine's dark hour. I found it on the Gospel Coalition website. You can look up the, the, the full article. But imagine what they're doing. The pastor says, we believe the church is a place of spiritual struggle. As tensions have risen, our church announced a week of fasting and prayer, gathering every night to bring our requests to God. During this critical moment, our church recently conducted several trainings on performing first aid. These lay people aren't going to become doctors, but this has given them confidence to care for their neighbors if necessary. If necessary, the church premises can be turned into a shelter. We are ready to deploy a heating station as well as provide a place for a military hospital. We have decided to stay both as a family and as a church. When this is over, the citizens of Kiev will remember how Christians have responded in their time of need. And while the church may not fight like the nation, we still believe we have a role to play in this struggle. We will shelter the weak, serve the suffering, and mend the broken. And as we do, we offer the unshakable hope of Christ and His gospel. See, that's light exposing darkness. We often think that we have to be the accusative case. You know, people who come up to others and say, you're wrong. And sometimes there is room and need to correct and confront. But our primary challenge is to adorn the gospel. Because when we adorn the gospel, we gain credibility that allows us to speak into people's lives out of a place of love and proven care that allows people to actually receive what we're saying. 
Our task is to engage constructively by embodying a vision of flourishing human life under God's rule so that when people outside see the way we love each other, they will want a piece of that love. And it demonstrates the glory of Christ's transforming love because that would be the only answer to how can these people display such a beautiful life of loving community given over to the purposes of their God. And this is nothing new to you. This is what Crestwick has done through Onside and through the Christian school. Yes, it's not been perfect, but that's what you've been doing. And moving forward, our challenge is to discern how we could continue to present a compelling glimpse of the glory and goodness of God's reign. That's why Paul says, discern what is pleasing to the Lord. And so he moves on in chapter 5, verse 15. Look carefully then, in light of the task of adorning the gospel, look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And wisdom is a wonderful concept. Let's understand that it goes beyond following rules. It is about knowing the right response in a given situation and executing that proper response properly. It is more a disposition than a set of rules. And Paul here is drawing on the, un- the Old Testament understanding of wisdom, which begins with the fear of the Lord. Well, let Sinclair Ferguson define the fear of the Lord because he knows a lot. To fear God is to be sensitive to both His greatness and graciousness. It is to know Him and to love Him wholeheartedly and unreservedly. To fear God, to trust God, to love God, and to know God. These are really one and the same thing. And so again, it begins with a trusting relationship with the sovereign God. So that in relationship with Him, He begins to change our desires. We desire what He desires because we love Him in response to His love. And that leads us to make the best use of our time because the days are evil. And you're saying, yeah, you're not kidding. The days are evil. Well, what Paul is talking about is the fact that we live in the already and not yet. And making the best use of our time means that we devote ourselves to living out the purposes of God instead of living for our purposes Because we recognize that Jesus has already brought in the new creation that will be consummated when he returns. And at that time, God's plan to bring all things under the authority of Jesus will be fulfilled. And that is what Paul means by the will of the Lord. Understanding what the will of the Lord is. God's will is to bring all things under the authority of Jesus Christ. So wise living means that we understand that God's redemption is centered on the church and encompasses all of creation. It means that redemption involves the forgiveness of sins 
And out of that restored relationship with God, being restored to fulfill God's original intent to be stewards of the earth, developing the potential good that he has built into creation. So living wisely doesn't mean that we spend our time giving out tracts. That would be perhaps most unwise if you're working or not working. (laughs) We cooperate, rather, with God's purposes by fulfilling our jobs and daily responsibilities faithfully. Because we recognize that a teacher who is a follower of Jesus Christ reflects God's love and creativity as she helps her students learn to live in this world as creatures made in the image of God. A believer who is a manager or supervisor in a company fulfills the purposes of God by fostering a work environment that nurtures employees and their families while promoting company profitability. We are modeling what it means to be under God's rule. And redemption means that we also point to the future that God is bringing about, to that new creation. So a doctor or a nurse or a personal support worker or a caregiver, whether professional or amateur, works to anticipate a world in which sickness will no longer exist while acting as God's means to care for the sick in the present. We'll talk about that when we go to chapter 6. That's what living wisely is about. And I think you're understanding that we need one another to help each other think through these issues biblically. But Paul points us to some, someone that we need desperately. Verse 18, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. That's one of those things that people wonder, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Well, in Ephesians, Paul has prayed that we would be filled with all the fullness of God in chapter 3, verse 19. And as described in chapter 4, verse 13, maturity as being filled with the fullness of Christ. So being filled with the Spirit isn't some airy-fairy, la-la, subjective high. It means being transformed to be more like Jesus as our lives are being shaped by His Word. I'm sorry that it's so mundane, but that's what it is. That's actually what means and matters more. As we together become more like Jesus, then we will corporately know what pleases God. And Paul gives us several um, ways that the control of the Spirit is demonstrated. He talks about corporate worship. We point one another to Jesus and honor Him in our singing, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. And And that doesn't just mean with feelings. It means that our whole person engages with God in submissive, adoring, grateful worship. It's not about the style. It's not about how you feel after we've worshipped. 
in many ways, whether or not you've been worshiping in spirit and truth is not demonstrated during the time of singing. It's what happens after the service is over. And we move out of the auditorium doors and have to engage with one another. And that annoying kid bumps into you again. <laughs> That's when we know you're, that you're filled with the Spirit. <laughs> but the point of it is, being filled with the Spirit will also result in constant thanksgiving. It sounds strange, but think of it this way. We can be grateful in every situation because the Spirit enables us to trust that God is in control and that He is at work in every situation, whether we like the circumstances or not. He is in control, and we will trust Him. And therefore, we can be grateful to Him. Then, last but not least, Paul says that the transforming work of the Spirit is demonstrated by our willingness to humble ourselves in love before one another and submit to proper authority. That's verse 21. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, we will talk about this next week. But for now, we recognize that to be under the Spirit's influence means that we give up our selfish determination to have our way in order to seek the good of others. And that same self-giving is motivated by reverence for Christ, which is another way of saying the fear of the Lord. Not because we are afraid of Him, but because we recognize that this judge who ought to condemn us gave Himself for us. And so we live together this life that shines the light of Christ by the power of the Spirit who guides and shapes us into the image of Christ. How do we engage the world? We engage the world by embodying the good life God designed for human beings. And as I think about that, I have to say, that sounds too feeble, too irrelevant, too small to make a difference in this world. But you see, it's not about us. Our hope and confidence is that God has brought us together to be His holy temple. As we faithfully live out the life that he has called us to live, he takes our feeble efforts and he uses it to accomplish his purposes for our good and for his glory. Or as Paul would put it, I planted, Apollos watered, God gave the increase. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you that you've given us the privilege of being involved in your grand purposes for this world. We thank you for the privilege of belonging to you and being the means by which you shine your light in this world. 
We look at ourselves and we are astounded to be called a city on a hill. We recognize we are on a hill, but sometimes we wonder about our influence and about our ability to make a difference in this world. But we thank you that we can recognize that it is not us who make a difference. It is you who makes the difference. But you are pleased to use feeble, frail, flawed people like us to shine the light of the gospel as we daily live out the gospel by the power of your spirit out of gratitude to you. So, Father, we pray, help us to be faithful in our ordinary lives so that you may do extraordinary things for your glory. This we ask in Christ's name. Amen.